Well, a very good evening to you. Um, welcome to the LSE virtually. Uh, this event, which is about the world after Brexit and about trade between uh, the United Kingdom, the EU, the United States. Um, this is an event which is jointly hosted by the LSE's European Institute and School of Public Policy. It has a Twitter hashtag, which is hashtag LSE Brexit. Uh, I should say my name is Tony Travers and I'm Associate Dean in the School of Public Policy and also in the government department here at the LSE. So um, what I want to do really is just go through these to tell you how our speakers are, say a few introductory words and then go on to explain your opportunity to join in later on. So um, the speakers that you're going to hear from this evening are Anthony Gardner, former US ambassador to the European Union from 2014 to 2017. Beatrice Kilroy Nolan, former senior EU and trade advisor to the prime minister in 10 Downing Street um, and working with the prime minister's uh, Sherpa David Frost. She co-led the U negotiating team in finally finalizing the Brexit withdrawal agreement in 2019 and Luisa Santos Deputy Director General at Business Europe responsible there for international relations and chair of Business Europe's EU UK task force so the three people with a very deep knowledge of the not just the issues affecting the short term not that short term I suspect uh, future trade relations between the UK and the EU and the UK and the US and indeed all the interplay there, but some of the politics surrounding that as well. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. So just to, re re uh, to remind you, there is a Twitter hashtag, hashtag LSE Brexit, um, and the event's being recorded and will we hope be made available as a podcast, uh, assuming there are no technical difficulties. And as ever at LSE events, there will be an opportunity for you to put questions directly to the panel. Uh, to do this, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of the screen, and I will keep an eye on that. And if you can, it'd be nice to say who you are and where you're uh, coming from, either geographically or whether you're an LSE person or not. So uh, I can give you that uh, degree of prominence. We'll get through as many speakers as possible and we will finish uh, at half past six, no later than that. So um, just a couple of words more before I introduce Beatrice to speak first. When we're arranging this program, we always worry about trying to plan in advance, uh, in advance to have timely events. This one has proved uh, miraculously timely, really. Um, with, uh, we're now over a week out from the counting beginning in the US election, but there appears to be a result, uh, and a result that could profoundly affect the future, not only for the United States, but for the rest of us. Um, the EU-UK negotiations are, as ever, still ongoing. Uh, as ever hitting ever more midnight deadlines and going straight through them. Um, but in a sense, those negotiations themselves may feel some backwash from the result of the US election. I think the whole event comes against the longer term backdrop of changes in the future in, in global trade and attitudes within many countries towards global trade and the benefits and the challenges that it, it brings and has brought. Uh, the future of the World Trade Organization, perhaps slightly different now than it would have been uh, a couple of weeks ago, but we'll hear that from our speaker, about that I've no doubt from our speakers. 
And of course, the event is also still taking place against the backdrop of a uh, spectacular pub and indeed tragic public health emergency, which is going to shape politics in the US, the EU, the UK uh, for a long time to come, in addition to the trade issues we're discussing this evening. So um, we're in a very unusual position internationally, nationally, uh, and in terms of the time. So it's a very good time to be having this event. So uh, the running order is Beatrice is going to speak first, then Anthony, then Louisa. So Beatrice, can I uh, pass over to you for, I hope, about seven minutes? Thank you very much. Thanks, Tony. Um, and thanks for the opportunity to speak at this event. I think, as you say, incredibly timely. So I'm, I'm going to take a bit of a UK perspective on all of these things. Um, and nine months after leaving the EU, what we find when we talk about the UK's place in the world of trade is that many people still seem to line up on their respective Brexit dividing lines. So on the one hand, many talk about the UK getting stuck in the middle, getting squeezed out or having very little influence, assuming that really size is might and that the UK will somehow inevitably be the loser and fall behind the EU. There are others on the other side of the debate who believe the UK will bestride the waves and with one deft kick set global trade off in the right direction again. Um, without dismissing either view altogether, because both have important grains of truth in them, and I'm not just being a former civil servant sitting on the fence on this, um, you know, there, there, there is an alternative scenario out to both of those. And to some extent, I think the UK can determine its fatalist bit. And one way to do this would be to play a role it's played before, the role of a kind of plucky, nimble, canny new entry on the trade scene with a few tricks still up its diplomatic and policy sleeves that it can play in this difficult game at a difficult time, as you pointed out, Tony. So first, a little bit of context. There's absolutely no question that the EU and the US are going to continue to have a significant impact on UK trade, for better or for worse. And for three, actually quite interestingly, similar reasons. They're the two, they're the UK's two biggest trading partners, um, and the EU a far bigger share, of course, than the US, but still the US is significant. And when they become more protectionist or introduce new tools or new internal rules, that will inevitably affect UK businesses. And both the US and the EU like to see themselves as setting the regulatory agenda, although in very different ways. So the UK could, in some areas, find itself being pulled one way or another. Now, another way they're similar is there are trade deals, in theory, to be done with both, which could be good for UK trade if done the right way. But both are also famously tough negotiators with very hard red lines. And each deal seems to come with some difficult strings attached politically. On the UK-EU side, it's about autonomy. On UK-US, it's more about domestic regulations and, and preferences. And despite what I said or a bit earlier about regulatory rivalry, actually only a few of the issues that might block things concern a conflict between the deals themselves. The third reason where they're similar is that actually, you know, they are both important diplomatic and security partners with shared values with the UK and by and large a shared agenda, particularly, of course, under a Biden administration. To get anything big done on the world stage at these tricky times, the UK is going to need to work with both the EU and or its member states um, and, of course, the US. And what this trade triangle that you've been talking about today obscures is the even bigger trade triangle, of course, of the US, EU and China. So just briefly before I finish, how might the UK succeed in, in managing all of this? I've got three thoughts. The first is that 
it can and indeed must be plucky because um, it's also got two important quasi-leadership opportunities coming up with the G7 and, and COP26. If it plays it well and carefully, if the UK recognises that its role is more as a shepherd than messiah, perhaps, if it comes up with and fights for solid proposals with the help of allies, and if it succeeds in getting something done, then I would have thought that after a long lull of international cooperation, that will earn the UK some respect, if not friendship, um, from both the US and the EU. It will have shown it can be a useful player who can help some of the giants um, find solutions. The second thought is that to do this effectively, as well as to navigate some of the regulatory minefields and lobby to secure UK business interests in both the US and the EU, the UK is going to need to bring to bear all its policy and diplomatic skills. It's going to need to redirect the sort of creative and pragmatic thinking, the hard-headed negotiating and joined up UK influencing that used to drive so much of EU policymaking, much to the chagrin of the French, of course. Finally, crucially, we need to work out what we, that's citizens, farmers, policymakers, businesses, actually really want um, out of this trade world and establish a domestic consensus on these issues. We're still testing the realms of the desirable and the possible with our newfound freedom. Things that sounded good in theory turn out to be hard politically or in negotiations. But I think that once we've worked it out, we do have a chance of getting it or at least some of it. And while we have less to offer in a negotiation with the, e with the US than the EU did, for instance, overall, actually in some areas we may be able to offer a bit more um, or find neat solutions in a small way to seemingly intractable problems. And of course, we are actually less of a competitive threat than, say, letting the whole of the EU into a particular market. Um, small countries often do do disproportionately well um, in negotiations. Of course, none of this might play out this way, and I may be under or overshooting in my expectations for how the UK might navigate some of this. But if it does, I think it would also help the UK navigate some of the bigger geopolitical economic games that are out there at the moment. Over to you, Tony. It's terrific, Beatrice. Super, thank you very much. That was uh, elegantly succinct and great start to the evening. Lots of questions from me, but I'll hold them for now. So thank you for that. Um, and pass directly over to Anthony. Thanks very much. It's great to be back uh, at LSE. Uh, I'm speaking in a personal capacity. I say that because I've known the president-elect for some time and I've worked uh, with him. Look, I was involved in uh, the work that was done in the Obama administration about Brexit. And I think everyone knows that the conclusion of all that very detailed work was that um, the view um, in almost every area is that Brexit would be negative for Europe, negative for U.S. interests, and we thought also potentially bad for the U.K. But that's water under the bridge. That's my message today. That's water under the bridge. No one wants to reopen that chapter. The United States wants the U.K. to thrive and to succeed and for many reasons, we think the UK will remain a very relevant, important actor across the many issues, not just trade, which I'll get to in a second. But starting with trade, of course, we're hoping for a, a UK-EU deal. Um, but it wouldn't be appropriate to comment on this very, at, at this very sensitive time on how the deal is, is evolving. Uh, if there is no deal, uh, and the impact of that is the reemergence of an inter-Irish border, uh, I think we've all seen the comments that have emanated from Nancy Pelosi, 
uh, which have been repeated many times. And I think uh, all of us on this video conference call have seen what the president-elect has said. Just to repeat, he has said, we can't allow the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland to become a casualty of Brexit. And he said, any trade deal between the U.S. and the U.K., must be contingent upon respect for the agreement and preventing the return of a hard border. Now, some people have expressed some disappointment with this, but I'm a bit surprised at the surprise because this is actually an international issue uh, that's considered very important to the United States. And no, this is not just a reflection of the Irish lobby. It's a reflection of the fact that the United States played an important role and it's considered to be in a very important agreement for maintaining peace uh, in Ireland. Uh, but let's hope for a deal. Let's hope for a deal. Um, and uh, to just, I just wanted to talk about some of the things that could result from a U.S.-U.K. free trade deal. Let's remember when Trump uh, was elected, a oven-ready deal was promised by many people within weeks or months. And I was very skeptical. Um, those of us who have been negotiating free trade deals know that it takes a long time, many years, usually. And here we are, not too surprisingly, four years later, and there hasn't been a deal. But I think a deal is important. And I think, I believe, that an incoming Biden administration will want to pursue such a deal. Maybe it won't be the most economically significant deal, but it will be important. And I think there are several components of such a deal. Eliminating tariffs on industrial goods. We already did that, essentially, within TTIP, as Louisa will remember. Um, 97% of tariff lines would be eliminated. I think there could be some very important principles in the deal regarding such issues as environmental and labor and IP protection. I think we could look to relax the so-called sanitary and phytosanitary provisions, which are essentially trade, you know, animal and, and plant health, which have been real thorns in our sides. I think we could look at good regulatory practices, probably easier to do with the UK with the EU. We could look at having a chapter to promote uh, exports from small and medium-sized enterprises across the Atlantic. We could look in some areas at professional qualifications recognition. We could look at freer labor movement. Uh, and in some agricultural areas, and here I'm not talking about chlorinated chicken or hormone-treated beef, but I'm looking at some uh, ag rules like GMOs, which could be easier to deal with uh, in the case of the UK than with the EU. The broader point, if I could make just in my last few minutes here, is that um, there is a really broad agenda for the US to work with the UK uh, going forward. And I say that because some members of the Conservative Party have believed rather bizarrely, in my view, that a Donald Trump administration would be great news for the UK. And that was seen through the very narrow prism of Brexit, because Donald Trump was a cheerleader of Brexit and thought more Brexit should occur. But if one were to widen that aperture just a little bit and look at where the UK's fundamental national interests lie, whether it is on climate change and promoting climate change and saving the Paris uh, Accords or uh, supporting free trade, not managed trade a la Donald Trump, but free trade or supporting speaking out in, in, in favor of human rights, which, which the UK has done very courageously, I should say, or protecting the rules-based international order. Terrible term, but that's the best we've got right now. Um, supporting and protecting the WTO and the WHO, uh, supporting NATO, promoting good governance, anti-corruption, uh, and, and, and human rights, as I mentioned before. Um, all of those, in all of those areas, there is a far greater degree of alignment between a Biden administration and the UK. 
So I would suggest that indeed um, there is a, is a broad area of issues on which to work. Uh, and, and the last point I wanted to make is I am convinced that a Biden administration would look to the UK as a very relevant actor that will continue to punch above its weight in all of these areas, not just intelligence gathering, not just in law enforcement, not just in military affairs, and not just in the areas I've just mentioned, but also in some other areas which are perhaps less obvious. I'll just mention a few. On the digital economy, the UK has done some very far-reaching, important work. And I'm here I'm thinking about the online harms white paper, uh, which was in, in which Jason Furman, uh, previously head of the National Economic Council, participated. And it raises issues that affect the United States as well, and we will be looking at carefully. For example, obligations of online platforms in terms of transparency. What kind of accountability should there be? Greater accountability of online platforms in terms of whether they live up to their uh, standards uh, and uh, of, of practice and, for example, the use of artificial intelligence. Should there be uh, auditing, for example, of the kinds of decision makings that are made by uh, algorithms? And um, finally, although I mentioned this slightly, what's very important is for the UK to join hands with us uh, and other like-minded countries in reforming the trading rules that desperately need reform at the WTO. And I think leveraging our joint power together with the EU is going to be essential. The final remark I'll make, Tony, is that um, the, the big difference one can expect, the really fundamental difference between the Biden administration and the, and the Trump administration with regard to the UK and the EU, is that this should be seen as a triangle of relationships. US, UK, UK, EU, EU, United States. It is not one side that matters, which is the Donald Trump view. US, UK was it. Didn't care about the EU and didn't care about UK, EU. I think that's a, mis it's a misguided view of the world. All three sides of that triangle are important. So yes, we, will, we do want to see a deal. We'd like to see the UK participate as closely as possible with the EU, not only on trade, but on law enforcement and all the other issues. With that, I'll stop. Thanks, Anthony. Wonderful. Again, elegant, short, to the point. Uh, and uh, third, we're going to hear from Louisa. Thanks, Tony, and good afternoon to everyone. I will bring a little bit the business perspective. Um, well, Business Euro represents European business, including the business in UK, because CBI is our member. Um, and I will try also to bring the perspective on, on this triangle. Um, what are the challenges and what could be the opportunities? Now, what are the challenges? I think there is one thing in common between the UK and the US right now in its relationship with the EU. Is in the case of the UK, we had the most integrated relationship we could have because the UK was part, and it still is for the moment, of the internal market and the customs union. And this is going to change. So we are definitely going to have a relationship that is minus than what we had from an economic point of view. With the US, we don't have a, a trade agreement, but unfortunately, uh, during the last administration, we had, instead of working to improve the trade and investment relations, we had a number of irritants that made actually this trade and investment more expensive and more difficult. I mean, we still have additional duties related to Airbus Boeing, to steel, 
uh, and a lot of threats, uh, threats on auto tariffs, uh, problems with the digital services tax. So in the two cases, we had actually, or we are uh, about to have a deterioration uh, of the situation for the business community. And I'm talking only on the business side. What are the risks? Well, the risks are that we, we're going to have duties uh, if we want to export to the UK and vice versa, if we don't have a deal. Um, that's the worst scenario. But what we are definitely going to have, because this is part also of the objective of the UK to become more autonomous in terms of regulation, is divergency in regulations. Maybe they are big, maybe they are small, but the fact that there is this opportunity is already creating more uncertainty for business. Of course, there will be options to be made also from the part of business, where to produce, how to produce and what to produce. Because a lot of companies that have invested in the UK and vice versa, they have done so not just to serve the UK market or not just to serve the EU market, but to serve the whole market that includes both the EU and UK. So this, this will be a challenge, including for American companies, because we have a number of US uh, companies that have invested in UK and also in Europe to serve to serve the two markets. So whatever is the final outcome, and we hope, of course, that we have a deal, trade and investment will become more difficult and more expensive. What are, is the other challenge? And that brings the US to the picture. We are both negotiating at the same time. So meaning the EU is negotiating with UK, of course, and the US as well. And we don't see eye to eye on everything. I mean, Tony already mentioned some, some of these points. Um, we have a system, for instance, of geographical indications that protects certain products. We know the US is very critical of this system. So what is going to happen? Of course, the EU will never do an agreement with the UK that does not protect uh, geographical indications. What about the agreement between the UK and, and US? Will this put in question this, uh, this concept? The other area, for instance, is standards. We know that also here, the EU and US do not see eye to eye because the US considers uh, th the notion of international standards does not necessarily uh, aligns with the EU's uh, view on what are international standards. And I know this is already creating some problems in the ongoing negotiations between the EU and UK, because of course the UK would like to have broader and more flexible language to allow an agreement with the US as well. So actually in some areas, there are some conflicting views and it will be very much up to the UK to make choices. And some of these choices are not going to be easy, of course. So these are some of the challenges. Now, where are the opportunities? And I think uh, both speakers already mentioned some of them. The UK is not going to be leaving Europe. It's going to continue to remain in Europe and therefore the geographical proximity also uh, towards Europe as it's very important. We share history, we share uh, common views on many issues relating to foreign policy, but also to climate and, and other areas. So there are opportunities, of course, for us to continue to cooperate. 
And we also hope that this involves the US. I mean, one clear area, and it was mentioned already, is climate, where we have seen uh, the US lately, or at least the administration, putting in question some of the some of the ambitions of the previous administration, the fact that the US is no longer in the Paris Agreement. This is a very uh, important objective for the EU, but it's also for the UK, because it will be hosting also COP26. So here we hope that there will be an opportunity for further cooperation now with the new administration. The other area I think Tony already mentioned regarding more specifically trade is the reform of the WTO. I think here too, uh, it's in the interest of the three partners that we have a functional international organization and an effective multilateral trading system. I mean, the rules are no longer the rules we need. And I think we need to work together, uh, the three of us, and together with other partners to try to build the rules that business needs. My other area uh, where we think we need to cooperate is everything that relates to foreign policy. Uh, and here for the business community, you know, issues like sanctions are extremely important. They have a strong impact, especially when they have extraterritorial uh, nature as they do in the US. So also here, it is important that we try to coordinate together, together with, uh, with the UK. And one other point that is connected to this uh, is China. I think uh, there will not going to, there's not going to be a lot of changes uh, in the policy of the US towards China. The methodology may change and we hope it changes because we have been telling for a long time uh, that the EU and US should work together to address the China issue. And addressing the China issue is not, in our view, decoupling from China, is trying to make sure that China does more, that China is ready also to stop uh, asking for a discriminatory treatment that is positive discrimination uh, to ensure that it doesn't comply with a number of rules in WTO because China is a developed economy in many senses. So it's time that also China contributes to the, to the system. So this is another area where I think it's in the interest of all the three of us to work together. And it's also in the interest of business, of course, because we are in a globalized world and it's important to keep global value chains and, and, and therefore we will go more and more into this direction of international cooperation to avoid unilateral actions, to avoid that everyone tries to do their own rules and this leads to market fragmentation and it leads, of course, to increased costs for, for business. So this will be my initial remarks. Thank you. Thank you ever so much, Louisa. Right, now, um, to leave time for people to start putting uh, questions in the chat function, I've got one or two, as I said, uh, that popped into my mind listening to our three speakers. Um, and I suppose the... The first one, um, Beatrice, is that within the United Kingdom, there's a sort of curiosity that the Conservative Party and certainly those who were supporting Brexit were very proud of the idea of free trade Britain, a historical understanding of Britain's attitudes to free trade and wanting to be a global Britain promoting free trade. And yet there are many parts of the UK economy internally 
that might not benefit from a radical shift in trade policy towards free trade. That is, the very areas in the Midlands and the North whose economies have been most affected by free trade, nothing to do with the EU, just trade, international trade, probably more with, the, with China than anywhere else, uh, latterly. Um, that it says people there want their jobs to be protected. Whatever we think about Donald Trump, he articulated the need to protect jobs in older part, older manufacturing parts of the US, but the same applies in the Midlands and the North here. So isn't there a fundamental conflict for the Conservatives as the governing party with a big majority in Parliament that they're a free trade party? They want to do free trade deals with countries, but they don't really want the full impact of that to feed through to the voters in the Red Wall. Um, I mean, you've definitely picked out uh, an important tension there, um, which I think the UK is starting to understand and the sort of the UK body politic is starting to get to grips with. Um, you know, one of the things about being an EU member is that a lot of these choices and trade-offs we didn't have to face in some ways because... The decisions were made um, one step removed. Uh, you know, quite often the UK didn't have to fight for its own um, its own manufacturers because actually other member states were doing that job for the UK and they were fighting hard to kind of slow down liberalisation or put in place quotas or other protections. Um, and so we didn't really have to confront that. And I think that's been that is a bit of a learning process. Um, there's still a desire, obviously, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking in a personal capacity here, of course, um, but I, what I can see is there's still a desire to deliver free trade, but an understanding that it's complicated and to do so takes time. And, and that was one of the reasons why, as well, I said at the beginning, that it's important that we take a bit of time to really work out what we want um, and to build a, a domestic consensus on that. I mean, just related to that, before I move on to Anthony, I mean, one of the curiosities of the apparent sticking points in the negotiations that live on and on um, is that um, the, you know, the given that, the, that Mrs Thatcher's government in particular was so enthusiastic about a single market and level playing field and getting rid of subsidies and invisible subsidies and so on that the UK is sort of wanting to ensure it has freedom to support subsidize or to to create new industries in a way that appears to be a sticking point which I, it seems to me and again uh, is a kind of very big signaling quite a big change inside british politics i suspect the labor party would be on side with it by the way um as compared with the freewheeling days of the 80s well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, first thing to say is uh, I don't think there's the debate on exactly what the UK subsidy regime is going to look like and how the UK is going to approach that is fully settled. Okay. Um, and the second is that, you know, we mustn't forget that there are two parts to this. There's one about what that final subsidy regime looks like, but there's also about, you know, who's who's deciding that. And, you know, while it might have made sense for... Um, Prime Minister Thatcher to argue for very strong rules and level playing field as an EU member when we were part of the rulemaking club. It's a little bit harder to go along with that when we have absolutely no say in how those rules are set going forward. That is a fundamentally difficult thing for any government to accept, even yep. a Labour government. Fair point. Very good. Helpful. Thank you very much. Anthony, you wanted to come on one of these issues and then I was going to move on to ask you my own question, but Please come in on this. 
And Louisa, if you'd like yeah. to at any point. And this is, I think, a really important, important issue. I remember in the TTIP negotiations being particularly struck when I spoke to a Scottish member of the European Parliament. And she told me, you know, I meet with my constituents in fairly remote areas of Scotland and their grannies who show up with no TTIP buttons on their blouses. And I thought, well, that's rather interesting. Well, why would they get so worked up about TTIP? And they thought that TTIP was the work of the devil, essentially, that uh, all these terrible things were going to happen from food standards and, and otherwise. So I, I'm not surprised that there is a lot of fear um, in even in the UK about free trade, as there is in Europe and also in the United States. But the point I wanted to make is this. I remember looking at the trade adjustment assistance funds, which exist in the EU, in the United States and in the UK. They're all pretty modest. Uh, in the United States, it's about a billion. I think in the EU, it's about 300 million. And in the UK, I've just pulled up on my screen here, the figures, maybe out of date from 2016. Uh, it's called the Rapid Response Service that's supposed to respond uh, to those who lose their jobs because of globalization and free trade. And it has the princely budget of 2.5 million pounds. Now, that's just not serious. And actually, I don't even think the U.S. Trade Adjustment Assistance Program is serious either, both in terms of the amount of money dedicated to it and in terms of its efficiency, because a lot of people say it hasn't worked in terms of reskilling people who are thrown out of a job. The point I want to make is we need to level with people. Free trade doesn't benefit everybody. There are losers. And when we stand up as public officials and promise the world and say that everybody is going to benefit from the rising tide, it's not true. What we need to do better is to protect those, in fact, who lose their jobs, and we need to put our money where our mouth is. Yes, and I think inside the UK, and I know this is true in the US and not unique to these two countries, you know, over 50 years, the challenge of making post-school education work precisely to match the changes in the economy, which have been profound, as uh, many countries have de-industrialized, you know, We've been good at universities in the UK, rather less good at, and this is under successive governments for decades, at the rest of post-school education, which now I think is getting a bit more airtime and a bit more uh, resource. But it's, you know, it does require individuals to change as the global economy changes. But as I can turn to you, to you directly, Anthony, now, the, on the... Um, you, you, you kind of almost referred to this, but, you know, seems to me as an observer of UK politics that the election of Joe Biden and what his colleagues and Nancy Pelosi said about what boils down to is if there's no, if, to put it simplest, if there's no deal between the UK and the EU and the Northern Ireland border is badly threatened, then no deal with, between the UK and the US. I mean, I don't want to turn it into a cartoonish version of itself. But how far is that true? If in the end, the UK negotiations with the EU break down, and there is no deal, and there is then a huge problem affecting Northern Ireland, does that make the deal between the UK and the US really, really difficult? Do you think? Yes. Well, that's short and sharp. But I mean, depending on how it turned out, because it would one way round this would be for the UK effectively to accept a border in the Irish Sea. I mean, that's the that's been. But I mean, this is 
how but, far do you think the U.S. is going to push this? I suppose is what well, I'm saying. I can't. I really I can't speculate. But you know, the argument which one hears now often in the British press is that well, it's not the U.K. that's going to impose the border; it's the nasty Eurocrats in the EU who will impose the border. But the fact of the matter is, if the U.K. leaves without a deal and it becomes a third party, third country without a deal, the EU quite naturally has to impose a border because it will be a third country like every other and cannot contemplate, permit uh, goods to flow into Northern Ireland and, and flow into uh, the Republic and then access the EU. Uh, there have to be regulatory checks at a minimum and, um, and even you know, and tariff checks. That seems to be a logical consequence of the UK leaving the EU. Uh, now, the Theresa May deal would have solved this, but it was floated down. Now the effort is to try to find another way of squaring the circle. We ho all hope that that will occur. But the, the truth is, there is no way of squaring this particular circle, is there? It is, I mean, uh, unless there is a pretty fulsome deal and or the UK government accepts that, and it, it has to some degree already accepted this on and off, that Northern Ireland becomes a sort of different version of a part of the United Kingdom. It's just become a, a, a part of the UK subject effectively to being nearer to being in the e EU than it is in the UK single market. Thus the, well, except that then led to the uh, potential breach of international law. But here we're digging up the past, Tony, I mean, because that was the Theresa May deal and it didn't, didn't go through despite many attempts to get it yep. through. Uh, we're, we're past that. Um, and the decision was taken by this government. It's out from the single market and out from the customs union. Um, well, I just hope that there is a way of addressing this issue we can avoid. We're, by the way, the, the government continues to assure us that their intention is to avoid a hard border and that a deal will result in that occurring because the deal could potentially result in no tariffs, which is part of the issue. It's not all the issue, but that the regulatory checks issue, I assume, will be addressed as part of this deal. And Louisa, on the issue of EU standards and this complex question of moving away from total alignment, I mean, seems to me almost inevitable, given that the, uh, and, and um, Beatrice made this point at the beginning as well, that the UK and the, e the sorry, the EU and the US are between them, global standard setters. Each one of them is in its way a global standard setter, so big that it's very hard for any other individual country or block yet anyway to um, override their, that power. So I just wonder that it, how far do we think inside the EU it's expected that some British companies will simply, whatever the, end, whatever the tariff rules are, whatever the negotiation, however the negotiations end up, that British companies will, to some degree, particularly the larger ones that trade with the EU, simply go on adopting EU standards themselves, whatever the UK government does with its regulatory framework. Yeah, I mean, it is, as I said, it is a question of choices. Um, and it depends on the companies. Uh, where is your market? Um, do, what market do you want to serve? You want to serve just the UK market? You want to serve the whole European market from the UK? That clearly is, is an issue. The, 
it is true, companies may continue to uh, implement your rules, but you need to ensure that they are implementing your rules. So this means there will be controls and there will be checks. And of course, if the basis, the official rules are very different, the more the controls and checks will happen. One of the main uh, out outcomes of, of the TTIP negotiations that did not produce the result that we were all expecting in terms of a deal was uh, an agreement on manufacturing practices for the pharmaceutical sector, where you have the inspections on, on, on uh, producing sites, and we have an agreement to recognize mutually the system that is applied in the EU and in the US. And this alone had helped a lot of companies because you avoid having to check this twice and having to have costs of checking this twice. If the UK decides to go far away from EU rules, it means they will have to check. It means companies, instead of what is happening today, basically companies do not have to do any checks or only one, they will have very likely to do two. So this is, indeed, companies can continue to, to, to use the standards of the EU if they want to sell to the EU, but it will inevitably increase the costs and it will increase the checks because you cannot be 100% sure what kind of standards that company is implementing. Is it the basic UK standards that could be different from Europe or is it going to implement EU standards? So. The question is, you will always have increased costs uh, because, because of the change. And, and frankly, and I, I will have to say something here, um, I know nobody here is, is defending or, or representing governments, so I will talk as business. Sometimes these policy choices are simply dogmatic. I, I will give you a very short example. We have a system of rules of origin that comprises the whole EU, after countries, Switzerland, Turkey, and some countries in, in Northern Africa, because we have an integrated value chain around these areas. We've been asking the UK to simply join this agreement that is called the Pan-Euromed Convention, but apparently there is reluctance because it's something that was created by the EU. I mean, this makes sense not only for, for business with EU, but also business with Switzerland, with Norway, with Turkey. So, you know, sometimes what we are asking is we understand the need for the autonomy and we respect it. But sometimes from an economic point of view and pragmatic point of view, these choices make no sense. I mean, Beatrice, can I um, can I encourage others to, to start putting in uh, questions, uh, uh, please, for our panelists? Because that characterization of the, so I put it, sorry, it's unfair. I'm going to make it a bit stronger sounding that somehow the UK, so these are my words, Louise, they're not yours, that the UK rejects common sense solutions simply because they appear to have Brussels behind them, even if they would actually make it easier for the UK to trade with countries outside the EU. Um, is that, do you, for your expertise, any sense that that was True, or will it will it sort of become easier as as we become or the UK becomes a sovereign state again and can kind of relaxedly make decisions of this kind, moving away from the white heat of the Brexit debate? 
Thanks, Tony and, and Louisa. Um, totally understand the concerns. I think I think what you say, Tony, um, has a lot of truth in it. We're still in that difficult phase of the divorce um, where we're going through a very unusual and unprecedented separation where you know, it's about trying to minimise the barriers rather than trying to reduce barriers of the sort that one normally sees in a trade negotiation. And it's still emotional on both sides and there's ideology on both sides. Um, and, you know, it, some of the decisions that get made are not necessarily just about economics, because actually often in trade agreements, decisions aren't always just about economics. They're also about politics, as we've also heard about the difficulties of trade adjustment and, you know, how having to take that into account. I mean, I, on rules of origin specifically, I'm not sure also that PEMS would do, you know, would, would actually necessarily deliver everything that business would want to see out of a of a trade agreement, um, even on its own between the UK and the EU. So there may be some more complicated requirements that need to be met in order for that to work. Um, but yes, I think that Tony, you're right, as we as we move forward, and hopefully if we if we can secure a deal, then there will be places on where we can build and improve upon that in the years going forward, working with business. And as we've got almost to this point, I mean, I was, as I walked in this morning, um, I was thinking about how, in a sense, we've all learned a lot about negotiation, certainly Britain and Europeans have. I mean, in the sense that the I know there's a literature about negotiations and how they're conducted and how you're supposed to go about them. And, you know, the outgoing president of the United States um, saw himself as a great negotiator. But the truth is, with this negotiation between the UK and the EU, at some level, it has to go to the very, very wire again, does it not? Because otherwise, it looks as if each side or both sides or one side wasn't trying hard enough. In a sense, it's got to go on and on till you know the clock is just inching to midnight. Not unique to this edition, this issue with the EU, it might must be said. So, is it just inevitable that this is going to go on till that last second? I mean. All three of you feel free to, 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 to it's just something in, inevitable about this kind of negotiation. Otherwise, one side or both looks feeble. Anthony, you're smiling. Is that a smiling of assent or all too knowing? No, no, no. I think, look, that's right. Of course, uh, the perceptions are important. Each side did as much as it could, but I, I, I have worried, I still worry, that there is a misconception about the red lines and what the EU can accept, and perhaps also on the EU side, some misunderstandings about what the UK can accept. I mean, look, um, my, my views, I think, are, are pretty clear, uh, but um, what, what's troubled me is that the, the UK, when it was a member, um, tried, often usually with success, to get all the advantages of being a non-member. And now it's trying to be a non-member and get all the advantages of being a member. Well, that's the ultimate for form of cakeism. Uh, it just doesn't work. Uh, and I think that has troubled a lot of the negotiations, I think, from the start. And there have been some unnecessary skirmishes as a result. Okay, this has got, I'm now going to move over. To, thank you for that, Anthony. Go over to the uh, questions from the audience. And actually, one of them goes straight back to you, uh, which is from Richard Cox. 
Do you expect a Biden presidency to lift EU trade sanctions in order to facilitate cooperation on China policy? I know you can't speak for the Biden administration, partly because it's not in power yet, but I mean, I, I professional su- judgment. I suspect there will be some things that will happen quickly. I would hope and expect that the uh, unilateral tariffs on aluminum and steel will be lifted. Um, they should never have been put in place. It was an abuse of executive authority, in my view, in return for the EU lifting its counter sanctions. Um, uh, and there are other things we can do, I hope we could do on Airbus and Boeing and, and lifting the veto on the dispute settlement body, the WTO, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's, there's quite a list. And I think Louisa mentioned an important pharma mutual recognition agreement. I think that can be expanded. There are a lot of things that we do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I see the linkage with uh, China. I think I mentioned that we should indeed work with the EU. We uh, never engaged, by the way, with the EU's white paper. Um, that had some very good ideas about how we reform the institutions. Um, the view of the Trump administration was that we don't need the EU. We do do this alone. And I think there's a fundamental misreading that Chinese really do fear. They do fear that together the U.S. and the EU with our, with our very important markets can put a lot more pressure on them. So I hope that happens. Louisa, did you want to come in? I, I, I couldn't tell whether you were signaling you wanted to come in or not. I mean, if not, shake your head. But we can't not on this one maybe right, maybe okay. just on a question of time because okay. because there is there is one important point i wanted to to stress okay we don't have a lot of time and and there are formal procedures already in the eu and we we are stretching them over the limit at the moment and our concern as business is that of course we are trying to do everything to be prepared but there are limits and it's not the same thing for instance to count on duties you have to be paying duties as of January and not having duties. So for us, this is the worst possible scenario. The longer the decision is, is, is taken, the more the problems will be for companies to, to adjust. So for us, I mean, this is the worst case scenario is that you have this uncertainty and decisions taken at the very last minute, because then, of course, some will not be prepared and the smaller ones, uh, especially. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, I'm going to move on to another question, slightly more political one, but let's go for it. Michael Blanning, uh, who's an LLC alumnus and ex-city worker. This is uh, for Beatrice, though I'm sure others will have you, which is, would a good crisis at Dover in January help the UK government in negotiations by bringing a dose of reality to the rabid Brexiteers who've been... Well, I stopped there. So... I mean, let's, let me try and rephrase the question slightly. I mean, is the risk of problems at the border and so on an element in the negotiations, do you think? Is it something that will be weighing on in the minds of those who are now locked in rooms doing these final negotiations? Yeah, I'd be very surprised if it weren't. Um, not just about, you know, problems, particularly at the, the border in Dover, all those those are important, but also more widely. Um, you know, I think the UK negotiating team will be working very hard to try to remove as many barriers as possible. Um, you know, it's in a sort of the sort of deal that's being discussed. That's going to be hard. There will be some barriers, regardless. Um, and you know, that's a great shame. And going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, I hope that in the future the two sides will be able to work to remove some of those barriers. 
even if they can't get rid of them, even in a deal scenario going forward. I mean, it's interesting to see that uh, within a 24 hours, the cartoonists in the UK press yesterday had got on to the fascinating paradox that um, the first vaccines that are going to have to get into the United Kingdom uh, to deal with COVID are coming from Belgium. Uh, we'll have presumably to get into Britain through, if not well, by one means or another, into the early new year. Um, Guy Jonquière has a question here, he's an ideas associate. Question for Anthony. Is the UK, if the UK government were to carry out its threat to renege on the withdrawal agreement, how far would that damage US trust in Britain's readiness to honour its international obligations in any area? Sort of brushed up against that before, but what about that? Well, that's, a, that's a, like a sensitive question. Let me try to answer it carefully. Um, I would have thought that the UK has an, a major uh, national interest associated with, with um, promoting and defending international law and being considered as a country that promotes and defends international law, respects international law, as it has for a very long time. Not only is the center where disputes are taken because many countries and companies trust that that will happen, that courts function properly and that, that the law is respected. So I was rather surprised, as I think many others have been, apparently the House of Lords as well, that this is a principle that um, will not be uh, will, will not be respected. And, and to argue that it is a limited exception or to say that the agreement was delivered and negotiated in haste, although it was negotiated after three years, and to unilaterally reinterpret the provisions of an agreement, because apparently the other side is hell-bent on being unreasonable, is these are all rather surprising things from, from a, you know, I think from a country that is respected justly for being a promoter of international law. Okay, thank you very much. Now, um, question from Silvia Palazzini, uh, an MSc Political Economy of Europe student at the LSE from Rome. Um, how will Brexit impact on non-trade policy objectives, i.e., and this is, we've touched on this as well already, but I'd like to go into a bit more detail, non-trade policy objectives, i.e. human rights and labour rights. So, especially with emerging and developing economies. So, is one of the consequences of Brexit going to impact on non-trade policy, uh, particularly not just with each of these blocks and countries with each other, but uh, more generally? Any thoughts on that one? I mean, you know, from a, from a UK perspective, um, you know, I think this will, human rights will continue to be something that you know, the UK cares a lot about in terms of its negotiations with other countries. Um, I mean, it, it was even part of some of the, the you know, the negotiations that the EU um, took forward as part of its association agreements. And the UK was always a big proponent of ensuring that human rights was an important factor in that. And I don't, my understanding is I don't think that's going to change. And that will continue to be a significant factor when the UK talks in an independent manner with, with other countries. Um, and labor rights, I mean, you know, this is a sort of emerging area. And of course, the US has 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 looked at this also in terms of USMCA. Um, and it will be interesting to see how that progresses in, in future um, trade negotiations. Um, you know, it's 
it's it's a, it's a slightly new and emerging area, I suppose. Okay, I'm going to read out uh, Lord Kerr, John Kerr has written in the question, which we sort of covered, but I'd like to get to his final line here, which is the threat to the Good Friday Agreement doesn't arise from no deal, though that would worsen it. It arises from the apparent UK plan to override the compromise, the Irish Sea frontier spelt out in the protocol with the withdrawal in the, to the withdrawal treaty. I agree with Tony Gardner that if such a plan were implemented, the US wouldn't conclude a trade agreement. I'm not sure quite, anyway, wouldn't conclude a trade agreement with the UK. Fortunately, I don't think the House of Lords will back down, he added at the end of that. So I just thought I'd bring us up today with thinking straight from the House of Lords. Um, yes, question from Summer Chardine. I hope I pronounced that right, Summer. Um, teacher of business English, how safe is the current financial passporting? That's an interesting question, given that Rishi Sunak made a big intervention on this subject a couple of days ago, effectively to concede or to accept that the UK government, I think I'm going to get this right, is going to allow equivalence for EU uh, financial institutions who wish to trade in the city of London and Edinburgh and so on. Um, how safe is the current financial passporting regime? Who'd like to have a go at that? Louisa, is that one for you? I can have a go. Um, I think we have two. Uh, well, we have the trade negotiations, of course, but we have some sides uh, that are not really negotiations, but they are unilateral decisions. And one of them is on, on the passport, on the equivalence of, because the passport we cannot say a passport anymore uh, in the EU, that the UK banks will not have that. They have, there is a decision of equivalence from the EU, a unilateral decision um, that still needs to be given. Mm. It's, it has been conditioned to the agreement, the whole of agreement. And a similar situation happens with data. Because that's also another very important topic is that data flows are conditioned as well because of the GDPR and because the UK will also be autonomous. Uh, they are also conditioned to a data adequacy decision from the EU. So these are unilateral decisions. The EU can give them or not give them. Uh, but uh, what the EU has been saying is that uh, this will depend very much on the outcome of the agreement. Of course, for us as business, we think that this should be happening even if we don't have an agreement. And it's something that we will definitely request uh, and have been requesting is that these decisions are taken independently of the trade agreement. But for the moment, they are politically being politically connected by the EU negotiators. Okay. But the situation will not be the same, of course. Of course. It's be very clear. Thank you. Well, let me move on to a question from Sienna Nordquist, who's an LSE master's student from Chicago, USA. Question for Ambassador Gardner. Do you expect the Biden administration to have an easier time forming a trade agreement with the UK or the EU? Interesting question. Fun question. Um, and by the way, if others would like to join in on this, feel free. Uh, I think both, both both are worth doing. Um, both will have to be significantly scaled down from the types of ambitious trade deals that we were contemplating in TTIP for sure. I think someone said at the very beginning that uh, we won't have much time. Uh, and number two, something like 80% 
of the new administration's bandwidth will be taken up by domestic affairs and 20% by foreign policy. And, and of that foreign, foreign trade is, you know, free trade has never been a, a very, um, you know, a popular issue to spend political capital on. Uh, but, 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 but UK and EU, I think, will, will may, may well be the exceptions here. Um, and I indicated the things we can do right away that, that are significant. I can just one word on equivalence here. I'm not terribly optimistic about this one um, because the UK has indicated, for reasons I can understand it, it wants to diverge. Uh, that's an area where it really wants to diverge. Now, how can the EU grant sort of open-ended equivalence to a regime that may well change over time? I don't see that happening. Uh, it's pretty, I think, core to the EU's um, you know, interests to ensure that it can withhold or give notice of, of not, not giving equivalence in the future should the UK actually diverge. So um, I, just don't, I just don't see how the EU would give the UK a, a, uh, a co-management role I think it's the word co-management role, deciding whether equivalence is actually there or not. It is a unilateral decision. Um, and it only covers, by the way, several areas in financial services. There are other areas that are not covered by equivalence decisions. Okay. Now, I'm going to move on to a question from Kate Bonhote, which is, what will be the greatest gain that Brexit will bring to the UK government in terms of governance and autonomy, apart from more control over borders, when globalization i've lost the question uh trade deals dictate so much so what would be the greatest gain uh beatrice do you want to have a go at that i i mean i suppose it depends on on you know how you how you categorize that gain are you talking about economic gain or are you talking about political gain um are you talking about social gain uh and i think probably on all of those it's 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 potentially too soon to tell um, you know, what the eventual effects will be. Obviously, the government is very focused on securing autonomy, the autonomy to design its own systems and to try to make them more UK specific, to, to you know, remove um, things which it has perceived as hindrances, uh, unnecessary hindrances potentially, um, because the UK might be different to the EU in some ways. Um, so, you know, I would have thought the government will be assuming that that is where some of the gains will be. But we'll need to also see how that plays out, because it may be that um, the citizens of the United Kingdom have got a different view about what is necessary and unnecessary to the politicians. And again, it kind of comes back to that political pricing exercise that we're still working through. OK, question from actually, a I, I, I may respond to this. Clara Mallison, who's a student at Sciences Po in Lyon, who asked, do you think that Scotland could draw the negotiations towards a softer Brexit? And I think it's fair to say, uh, Beatrice, you'll nod if I've got this right, that the Scottish government, like the Welsh and Northern Irish governments, though they have different views about Brexit, in the end, don't have much of a role in the, in the you know, they're consulted but in the end they'd like a softer brexit but i suspect the uk government is negotiating very much as a unitary state with a small number of negotiators representing the united kingdom it's a it's a fascinating piece of learning how much in the end the uk is a unitary state when it comes to it uh, no veto power at all for the other parts is that right beatrice you're helpfully nodding as i add my night thoughts here does that sound right? It does. Okay. 
Um, right now, Casper um, Kaisers, who is uh, Kaisers, perhaps an MSc European Studies student, TTIP is expected to add only 0.5% to EU GDP. Others will understand this question more than me, and a smaller percentage to US GDP. Will TTIP be an important policy goal of the Biden administration? I'm afraid it's another one for you, Anthony. It is exceeding the Trans-Pacific Partnership regarded as more or less important than completing and implementing TTIP among American foreign policymakers, and why? It's a long question. You can see it, I hope, in the questions themselves yourself, if you wish. Well, so there won't be a TTIP 2.0, I think. All right, okay. There won't be. There's no uh, desire for that in, in Europe, and I don't think there's any desire for the United States because it can't be done. Now, I think some of us will remember that uh, at that time, Vice President Biden said that if you're going to be crucified, you might as well be crucified on a big cross. You know, at the time, that sounded right, and we discovered that the cross was pretty big. And uh, so we're going to have to be scaled down in our objectives. Um, and I try to suggest that even though we would be scaled down on our objectives, um, it's meaningful. And by the way, it's right. Economically, TTIP, even at, its, at the midpoint of ambition, would not have been transformative. But I was never you know, convinced that that's a very strong argument not to do it. Because if we can create jobs in a COVID world, why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we try to promote export-facing export jobs that are well-paid, number one? And number two, there are also political reasons to do this, and many political reasons. Uh, there would be an energy chapter, which is significant for, for, for Europe. But beyond that, I would like to see a strong digital chapter of principles in the digital economy that we share, and many other areas which are, go beyond just the economic significance of this. So, um, oh, and by the way, another area where I would love us to work intensively with the EU and the UK is standards, but in a different way, making sure that the Chinese don't dominate international standard setting bodies. This is a really big deal. The Chinese have identified this and are clearly out to di dominate international standard setting bodies. They already have five, five large bodies like the International Telecommunications Union, International Electrotechnical Commission and three others that they have appointed their members to. And with the result that they um, enshrine their standards uh, and their exporters have an advantage. We, we can't let that happen. We need to, we need to set the standards for um, many areas of the world economy. I mean, just can I go a bit further into that issue? Because it is, we're back at some level with the future of the WTO or indeed world trade, however managed uh and uh, you know as china's economy grows and you know it will grow relatively as a result of uh it looks at the moment as if it will grow relatively significantly as a re result of covid19 it will take a big step uh upwards relatively at the moment we've conceded that one of the problems well, the issues the uk faces looking ahead is that the united states and the european union are large blocks their standard setters the eu perhaps in particular um but it's going to be i mean it's inevitable isn't it that china will simply become a third standard setting player uh i mean it may, it may be that the us and the eu don't like that but it's isn't it not inevitable that, it, that china just becomes another standard setter as it as its economy grows towards being well that 
you know, substantially bigger than any other in the world as its GDP per head grows. Anybody got any thoughts on that, dear panelists? Um, I mean, oh, go on, Louisa. You, you go. Start. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. I'll follow. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say that you know, if, if that is obviously a risk that, as 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 Anthony just pointed out, that China does start to dominate some of these standard-setting bodies, and in order to avoid that, I think it will be really important as you said, that the EU and the UK and the US work together. There have been differences on the on international standards between. Um, the EU and the US, and there may yet be between the, the UK and the US, I don't know. But actually, there's a bigger agenda out there. Um, and ensuring that we all have enough voice in the way that those standards get set and are involved in those decisions is going to be, be critical, I would have thought. Thanks. Louisa? Yeah, I wanted to, to, to add the following. I mean, we are, of course talking about international technical standards, you mean that relate to quality, security, and so on. And then you have international, you have standards in a larger sense, meaning rules and meaning, you know, principles, shared values, and so on. And here the Chinese are completely apart. I mean, on technical stand, maybe they, they could even be closer because in many cases they are as a basis, they are departing from international standards. The problem is then that they adjust them uh, when they bring them to China and this creates problems, this creates technical barriers for, for companies. But the big problem is on the general setting of rules. There is where we really are very, very far apart uh, from China. And I think the tendency actually is that we draw further apart because we see that there is no backtracking from, from the Chinese government to give a stronger impetus to state-owned enterprises and a stronger uh, role of the state and the political guidance in the economy. And that's a problem. It's a problem for our companies in China, but it's also a problem around the world because, of course, China now is operating all over the world. So this is an area where we cannot afford that China is at the same level as we are. We need to work together because we cannot uh, allow, I think it's not in our interest to allow that the rule of the Communist Party in China and the grip that the state has in the economy becomes the model. This is not part of the, the way we, we, we think about economic development, but also uh, democracy and, and independence and freedom that we have in our society. So I think here is definitely an area where we need to work. And part of it has a, a very economic component, and that's the WTO reform, because that's the minimum set of rules that govern the world trade. And that allowed China to go from 4% uh, of trade in the beginning when it became a member of the WTO to more than 20 these days. So they benefited a lot from the system. Uh, but we need to ensure that now they get more in the system and, and allow uh, the rules to be, to be also adjusted to take in, into account the new reality of, of trade, including on digital or, or on climate. But how is it? I understand that argument, but I mean, how, how can that be... Um... Given that there are other diplomatic pressures on China, quite a lot of them, 
for all sorts of reasons uh, to do with their own tr treatment of their own citizens internally and uh, also because of Hong Kong very much in the news as we speak. Um, so even with the most subtle of diplomacy, trying to um, bring China into the fold on trade while simultaneously having a firm line on all these other diplomatic issues is going to be it's going to continue to be a serious challenge isn't it yeah i think there is but i think we 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 need to explain that it is in china's interest because what are we seeing today what we're seeing today is of course there is a, a an almost trade war between China and US. This has created a lot of frictions. Of course, not only additional duties. I mean, we are seeing also that China is being prevented from accessing certain technologies. This is affecting Chinese companies as well. Of course, they can change the model. But in the, in the end, I don't think it's in China's interest, economic interest, if they start having, you know, this kind of tensions with a number of partners around the world, and especially with the main uh, markets where they export their products, and which are the EU and US. Then you have Japan, and of course you will have the UK at one point. But if it is not in the interests of China also to create frictions with its trading partners, because in the end it will be uh, negatively impacting the, the Chinese economy. That, by the way, has already a lot of problems. So it's not it's not blooming in the surface. It could be, but there's a lot of problems of credit, of debt, or the overcapacity that at one point will 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 appear will be more visible and will create problems also for for the the ruling party. So I think in the end, if we act combined and together, uh, we can put some pressure on China. Yes, maybe not to change the regime in China, but to behave a bit differently uh, outside. And Anthony, I mean, President-elect Biden is going to have to come up with, is inevitably going to come up with a more nuanced policy, I'm guessing, than his predecessor. But even so, the room for manoeuvre, given, you know, China's record on a number of issues is limited, isn't it? I mean, you know, and indeed, um, it may not be Donald Trump's trade policy, but other issues may have a more, I mean, a Biden presidency might take us further down the track of um, greater pressure on China question. Well, yes, you were very diplomatic, Tony. You said that you expected the Biden administration being more nuanced. I, I think that it wouldn't be difficult for any administration to be more nuanced about anything, including on China. Um, but you're, I, I'd agree with you that this is one of the rare areas of bipartisan consensus in the United States. Mm -hmm. There are no doves on China today. You know, even during the Soviet-U.S. rivalry, there were doves essentially. Today on China, there are no doves. Uh, and I think actually China deserves unfortunately, much of the blame for that, uh, given its record, both on the economy and political issues and its drift toward further uh, control uh, domestically. Uh, but yes, there will be, there, there will be pressure, but the, the key issue is one of tactics. Um, I, I think that any president clearly has to promote the interests of the United States and the American people will ask, well, who gets results? Who gets results? What are the results of the trade one, the phase one trade deal? Very limited results in financial services. There have been a few, to be fair, um, but the Chinese, uh, you know, promised a lot of things, including buying more of our stuff. 
They haven't even come close, not even close to actually fulfilling those promises. But in fact, it's a rather bizarre way to proceed. We criticize the Chinese for being too much, uh, you know, having too much state control. And in the same, same breath, we say we actually want the state to mandate more purchases of products from the United States. Um, and I think it's a bit of a disaster for uh, many uh, Americans, including agricultural exporters who have been subsidized, in fact, through uh, payments from the government to make up for lost markets. Look, we have to go back to fighting and winning in international trade. Uh, but that means being smarter. And by smarter, we've already said it, Louisa said it, Beatrice has said it, working with our allies. Together we represent not only, uh, what is it, uh, it's something like 800 plus million people, but the power of our markets. And if we align ourselves to the degree it is possible to do so, the Chinese may well have to align with those standards because they want to access our markets. That's hugely powerful, hugely powerful. So we need to get smarter. And what I think we've been, we've almost got here before, and there was a question from Richard Cox at the very beginning, which I think I didn't refer to, but we've got back to what precise changes to should the the EU, the UK, and the 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 EU, the US, and the UK work to deliver through the WTA and reforming the WTO, sorry, the WTO, um, what, what are the kind of precise targets that, they, that, that working together these three pro-trade, pro-moderate politics blocks could achieve, blocks and countries could achieve at the WTO, given it's in a fairly enfeebled state at the moment, as I understand it? Anybody... Beatrice, I can, answer, go on. I can start. Um, go on, yes, Lisa. Uh, well, the first, the first priority is to have a new director general um, because we know the U.S. at the moment is is blocking the appointment of a director general or the future that was recognized by everyone, including including the U.N. U.K. So that that is the first, the first uh, urgency. Then I think the dispute settlement, uh, because we have, we have a problem with the appellate body. Um, it's, it's an area where I think the UN, US and the UK need to work together with other partners. And then we need to find new rules. What we already mentioned, uh, the rules that we have are no longer fit. They are no, they don't, they don't fit companies. They don't fit government. So we need to, we need to take this into account. What areas? Well, we are negotiating on digital trade, on e-commerce. Uh, this is a very important area. Not easy to find a common ground because there is a, a difficult balance between privacy and, and access and data flow. So we need to find, but we need to find a common ground. Uh, and then the other priority for us at the moment is, is, is environment and climate. Uh, it is a question also of legitimacy of trade and making sure that our societies, uh, and especially in developed economies, remain supportive of trade. We need to use more trade uh, also to, to promote, you know, uh, more liberalization in environmental goods, technologies. Uh, we need to show that trade is not bad for climate on the contrary. And I think this is very important as well. So these for, for us are the, are the critical areas to make sure that the WTO remains remains relevant. Uh, so dispute settlement, rules, market access. Thanks, that's great. I mean, Beatrice, the WTO as a concept, 
has been very important to the British government in the trade negotiations, partly as a sort of, don't worry, we can always go on to WTO terms. But actually, because uh, its functioning is essential, you know, however, it, all these, the, the trade, the, the relationship with the EU ends up. So is that correct, that the UK has a lot of uh, vested interest in the WTO functioning well? Yes, absolutely. And it's always had a, a very strong vested interest in the WTO functioning well and has been a big supporter of it from the start. And, you know, I think, you know, following up on some of the things that Anthony and Louisa said, I, you know, Louisa picked out, uh, you know, all, all the right priorities. Going back to what Anthony said, you know, it's also about the way of tackling this that we've been missing the ability to actually talk to one another and come up with shared solutions. And just the, the mere fact of being able to have that conversation about what the future of the WTO looks like, how to revive it, how to update those rules, you know, that's potentially quite transformative because um, we haven't been able to do that over the last few years. And that has hindered us in our ability to bring the WTO up to, up to date and ensure it is fully functioning. Anthony. There is a fair amount of agreement between the U.S. and the EU about what needs to change. It's a long list, but, you know, the U.S. has had a beef even during the Obama years about how um, members of the uh, uh, dispute settlement body made law and went beyond the four corners of the dispute that was put to them. I think the rules could probably be tightened in that regard. I think uh, decisions could be uh, faster. And I think the, 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 the criticism has often been made is the Chinese are gaming the system is by the time decisions are handed down, the damage has been done and uh, it's too late, uh, which is which is quite true. One could perhaps think instead of prospective, also having retrospective damages as well. Um, to, well, this is not nothing new here, but tougher rules on subsidies and, and state-owned enterprise, which are major, major issues. But it's not just the WTO reform. I think we have it in our power, the EU and the United States, to do things even without, without the WTO, that brings the Chinese to, to heal. The EU has this international public procurement initiative, which I think is terrific. It basically says to countries, particularly China, if you keep your public procurement market closed, we will uh, you know, close our markets as well. So there, there are a lot of areas for leverage that you can use to, uh, to, to force change in China. Okay, now we're coming towards 6.30, and I wanted to ask one quick question from the uh, chair and then a sort of classic end-of-event question. And it's really a question about, perhaps most to Beatrice, about the, the position of the United Kingdom in doing, because uh, of its need to deliver trade deals, be they with the EU or the United States, or frankly with any other country in the world, um, Given that need from a standing start to have these new trade deals, is it going to make it harder for the UK to have a tough line diplomatically during that period, particularly with some countries where, in a sense, the UK's capacity to say what it really thinks might be constrained by its need to do a trade deal with them? I mean, we're almost back to China again here, but I don't just mean China. Is that, is that a, a real issue for diplomats? So... You know, I think in in theory it could be an issue. I think my my experience is that there's a slight misunderstanding sometimes of of you know the way in which the UK is going to pursue its trade deals. Just because the UK really wants trade deals, there's an assumption that it will do them at any cost. 
um, including with the US um, or with others. Whereas in fact, you know, there are certain standards which the UK government has been clear must be met and below which it will not go. And I, you know, I think that UK negotiators will be working very, very hard to stick to those and will not welcome a sense that they need to be rolled over. And, and I think we've even heard the government saying, you know, for instance, on the UK-US deal, that yes, they want a deal, but again, you know, substance must come before speed. Um, so, you know, I think th- th- those countries should probably not misunderstand um, uh, how desperate the UK is for trade deals. They want trade deals, but not at any cost. Okay. I don't know if Lisa or Anthony want to add anything to that, uh, Michael. Okay. So my sort of, fine, by the way, I'm, one or two of the questioners, I apologise not coming to your questions because they're kind of about international relations more generally. And there's great to be said for international relations more generally, but I'm trying to shepherd us back to um, the sort of, EU, US, uh, UK trade issue. And with that in mind, the last question, and I, it was one somebody suggested, and I can't now find it on the thread of questions, but so forgive me, O questioner, which is <clears throat> sort of what do we think trade between the large block of the EU, the United States, and the UK is going to look like 25 years out from now? So so just to get through all the heat and light of the current moment, you know, the UK will have left the EU. It'll become a settled thing like Britain's relations, like, you know, Switzerland's relationship with the EU, which is not quite settled, but you know what I mean, or Norway. And the US will have had, you know, how many more presidents by then and so on. Um, what do we think the, the, the territory of global trade will look like 20, 25 years out, particularly relating as I say, to the block of the European Union, the US and the UK's trading relationships, but go beyond that if you like. Who'd like to, classic end of the evening question, who'd like to have a go at that first, if anybody? It's only 25 years. Looking back to 1995, we'd have guessed where we were now in 1995, wouldn't we? Anthony, I'm going to pick on you. Go on, I can give it a go. Um, Go on, thank you, Louisa. I think we have two options. Uh, One option is that we manage really to reform the WTO um, and we manage to create uh, a new multilateral trading system with a basic set of rules and possibly having relations with key partners and this could be the US uh, it could be the UK, where we had a bit more. Not necessarily only on trade, it can be on technology, it can be research, innovation, energy, climate, etc., digital. So a set of agreements in, in the WTO, our bilateral relation that goes a bit further and, and develops um, other areas. We can have another option, that's for me the the less positive one is the one where we don't succeed in WTO reform. We go back to a world where we have uh, strategic alliances or regional alliances. We have a set of rules that relates to those regional uh, alliances. 
we could have one in Asia, we could have one in Europe, uh, and maybe on this one uh, I can very well see the UK, the EU, and also the US. Uh, we go back to the North Atlantic Triangle and the Atlantic. Um, the question is, for me, what will happen with you know continents like Africa um, that for the moment are not really completely part of all this regional and, and, and international alliances, but we could have a more fragmented world. And I don't know in that context, um, we could have, you know, stronger regional political integration within the North Atlantic, um, maybe with some countries in, in the Pacific, um, but more difficult situation, more prone to conflicts, uh, especially trade conflicts. So I hope not. Um, but that could be one of the outcomes of in 20, 25 years. So I don't, I don't think we should be naive. There is that possibility, of course. Okay. Thank you very much. Beatrice, Gentany, which would you like to go next? Happy, happy to. Happy. Well, look, okay. uh, just very quickly. Um, Unfortunately, I think the nature of our politics in Europe and the United States is, has been, is short-term and will be short-term. You know, back in 1994, 95, I was at the White House. We were talking about a transatlantic marketplace back then. It had already been discussed. And here we are, 2020, and it hasn't happened. And I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, the Chinese, um, for all their faults, um, think big and they think long-term. What I would like to see is the United States and the EU to, and the UK, once it's left, to work more intensively. I don't know what that's going to look like. Uh, and I mentioned before that, unfortunately, I think the next four years will be small, important, uh, concrete steps, but not thinking big. We just are not going to be in a position to think big. So I tend to be somewhat wor well worried and skeptical, like Louisa. Uh, that we could see a world with a Chinese sphere of trade influence uh, with countries that are tightly integrated with its uh, economic system uh, and in a European EU system with its, its own countries tied into its system and a US system, which I think would be unfortunate. Thank you for that. Uh, and Beatrice? So I'm going to possibly betray that I'm a bit of an optimist. Um, I, you know, I think 25 years hence, uh, you know, I, I think given the way in which uh, the various different economies of the world are developing, the, the speed at which they're growing and, and will pick up, I hope, um, as, uh, as they recover from the pandemic, you know, it would be hard to see a really fragmented world actually continuing in that context. I think also, though, the, the relative importance of the UK-US-EU triangle will have receded a little bit because some of the other economies in the world will have grown so much more um, because of the changing nature of trade as well um, and the increasing role that services have to play in that. So I think we're looking at, you know, potentially a, a very different world, a very different setup. Um, and I hope that uh, that actually the WTO has managed to keep up to date and and has enabled that. Um, and I think there is a good chance, um, particularly with the UK and the EU and the US working together. Okay, well, it is, it is uh, good to end up on a broadly optimistic note. So thank you for that. Okay, we must finish now. We're three minutes over time, my fault. Um, 
I'd just like to do a few thanks uh, very briefly. Uh, I'd like to thank the European Institute and the School of Public Policy, who are the joint sponsors, Rosemary Hines, of course, who is the um, person who's really organised this, this evening, and Antigone Burugari in the events team at the LSE. And of course, most particularly, I need to thank our speakers, Beatrice, Anthony and Louisa. Uh, and there are future events. We'll be having our ever popular, we have one every now and again, um, event when another stage of the UK finally leaving the EU happens. So one of those is coming up in December, um, I think. Uh, and keep an eye out for that. And uh, there will be a podcast of this event, we hope, for those who are expecting and hoping for that. So thank you all very much, our dear speakers, and all of you for your questions. Uh, and I uh, hope to see you all again soon and eventually back in situ, but not for now. Take care and good night.